भाव्यवाचो आरहतो turn to page 98 and 99. Very, very back. The last page. Next to last page.
the third stanza. Over to the right, in his wish to seek the way supreme, he renounces his own royal throne. He can, within the Buddhist teaching, cultivate with courage and diligence. Okay, uh, if we were to chant it over on the left again, Yu Chou Zui Shang Dao, Yu Chou Zui Shang Dao, Shu Ji Guo Wang Wei, Shu Ji Guo Wang Wei, Nang Yu Fu Jiao Zhong. In his wish to seek the way supreme, in his wish to seek the way supreme, he renounces his own royal throne, he renounces his own royal throne, he can Within the Buddha's teaching, he can within the Buddha's teaching cultivate with courage and diligence. Cultivate with courage and diligence. All right. We're talking about kings. Why is that? Because this part of our sutra, this is a, a Mahayana sutra, this is a sutra the Buddha spoke, a teaching the Buddha gave about. Uh, Bodhisattvas about uh, very unselfish, very selfless people. Um, in this chapter, which is describing the path of the Bodhisattva in detail, we've come to the very end of part one. This chapter has ten parts. And this is part one, very end. This is a summary. And in this part of our text, we're hearing about uh, the um, refrains, because... Uh, Michael, I'm sorry, would you boost it a little? You took it down just a little too much. I need a little more volume. Thank you. Um, the, um, the Bodhisattva is, he's got lots of, uh, um, there's detailed description of what a Bodhisattva does in this chapter. Ten, ten long parts. This is a big chapter out of our sutra as well. And there are parts that repeat. There are some parts of the chapter that are just like refrains. They're like a chorus almost. And you get it time after time, but with a little subtle variation depending on how we go up through the ten grounds. So this is one of those sections where we get a variation, where we get a repeat like a refrain. So uh, that's what happens at the very end of each chapter. So in other words, we're not getting new information. This is not specifically what this bodhisattva cultivates. This is the end result. Having done so, this is what happens as a result. Now, um, the word king comes up. We're hearing about kings. And kings is a, uh, 
that's a perplexing concept because in this country, this country was created in a reaction against kings uh, precisely because we were tired of royalty. I uh, shouldn't say we because certain people in Europe were tired of royalty so they um, came to this country to get away from all that that entailed. And before that time, if you grew up in Europe, uh, you knew all about kings. And if you grew up in Africa to this day, kings are very much a part of the world. If you grew up in the Arab states, you know about ruling classes. They might be called sheikhs. They might be called sultans. Um, they might be called kings. And you're aware of that. If you grew up in parts of East Asia, uh, you know all about kings. And if you grew up in parts of uh, the Pacific Islands, there are kings to this day. So royalty, which is to say a certain kind of human being that is privileged, set apart, sometimes by birth, um, mostly. Sometimes a king can become king by force having no particular virtue of their own, they just knock off the previous king and put themselves on, on the throne. Um, if a culture sticks around long enough to have a history that you can trace, that's when it gets interesting. China is one of those places. India is one of those places where uh, rulers come and go, come and go, come and go. And so you can, you can actually establish patterns. You can see how, how it works. Uh, when royalty rises and falls. So, what does that have to do with a Buddhist sutra? Why in our Buddhist text tonight do we have uh, talk of kings? Well, uh, that's what we're going to look into. So, we began the section about kings last week, right here on the top of this page, the top of page 98 and 99. And you'll notice, if you turn over, that we're done in uh, eight stanzas. In eight stanzas, this, this first ground is over. So the king pops up at the end of this chapter. And if you turn to the end of the second ground, here's the king again. And it could be a queen. This is not gender specific. It's royalty. We could be better off translating royalty. Uh, you get the same, the same teaching. It's not king as in male ruler. It's ruler. So, um, that's what's going on. That's why we're finding out about kings. And I know there are people here tonight who maybe are not familiar with listening to Buddhist texts. Buddhist texts are kind of a fresh idea. And let me just give a, a little bit. The... Um, a lot of folks come to Buddhism and say, oh, I hear that Buddhists meditate. And I like to meditate. I think I'm going too fast. Meditation feels good because it slows me down. And that's something I can use. That's a, if that's a thought that you've had or an experience you've had, you're, you're in the right place. For sure, uh, Buddhists do do that. In fact, our signature moment, um, the, the moment of our historical Buddha's awakening, Shakyamuni Buddha's, enlightenment beneath the Bodhi tree came after meditation. And so we kind of have our, our founding icon is somebody sitting like that under a tree. And 
uh, often with this uh, round energy, this light or halo or uh, kind of aura surrounding that that's how we visually kind of mark Buddhism. So if that's how you, if that's the door you came in, you're in the right place. But I must say it's a big, big house. The door you came in has many doors, many rooms. And people are drawn to this idea of enlightenment and stillness, uh, the emptiness that results when you sit still and see through things. But let me ask you, what next? After you're enlightened, what next? Do you still check your email? Do you still get a cup of coffee in the morning? If you're enlightened, do you fight with your relatives? You know, would you, do you do the stuff that you do? Do you go to weddings? Do you take a vacation? All the things that people do? Those are legitimate questions. I'm more than whimsy. Right? What do you do when you're enlightened? Gee, I don't know. I've never heard anybody talk about that. Never read about that. This is what you do. You talk about what happened. Because people ask. Uh, in the case of our historical Buddha, Brahma gods immediately wanted the Buddha to speak, wanted the Buddha to explain what he saw through his newly awakened vision. Tell me, please, how do things look once you're awake, once you're no longer covered over by ignorance and opinions and biases and greed and anger and delusion and attachments, desires. Please tell us how it looks. That's the question that every awakened person, every awakened human gets asked. And the Buddha spent the next 49 years answering that question. This particular text in front of us, the sutras are what the Buddha described through his awakened vision. And how come we haven't heard of these? How come I came to meditate and nobody mentioned sutras? Well, the quick answer is, how's your Mandarin? How's your Sanskrit? How's your Tibetan? How's your Mongolian? How's your Korean? How's your Japanese? How's your Vietnamese? Mm -hmm. The answer to some of those is not too bad. Okay, if so, pick up a sutra in those languages because those are also Nepali. We left out Nepali and, and a few others. Now, English. Now in English. Um, before this time, you had to know Asian scriptural languages before you could say, yeah, I know what the Buddha talked about. Because we only got it in drips and drabs. And often the drips and drabs that we got it in were translated by folks who maybe had a scholar's bent, which is to say more analytical than devotional, more interested in the linguistic side than in the faith side or accuracy to what the Buddha's intent was. Or, um, bless their hearts, many missionaries were the first people, the first non-Asians in Asia to meet Buddhist texts. So what did they do? They would translate, create dictionaries, Matthew's Chinese English Dictionary. R.H. Matthews was a Christian missionary. And he provided us a door to these texts. Did he bring 
an agenda to it. He'd be strange if he didn't. Right? So, the, if we found the words of the Buddha, were they delivered in the context for the reasons that they were originally spoken? Hmm. Question. Worth looking into. So, that's why, maybe, if you came into the Buddha's mansion, the Buddha's world, to meditate, you might say, I haven't heard of these sutras. I didn't know they existed. Could I direct your attention to that wall? <laughs> That's the 49 years worth of teaching. And how about this one over here? That's the 150 volumes that didn't make the cut into the, the varsity text, right? That's the second team text. Um, so there's a lot, a lot, a lot of Buddhist literature. And bit by bit, we're bringing it into the West. So, welcome to our sutra lecture tonight. Um, the reason why I'm sitting here and saying these words to you is because this venerable monk, uh, Master Xuanhua, the late Chan Master, Tripitaka Master, made it his priority to explain Buddhist texts every night of his life after he got to America. For 30 years, Master Xuanhua took 90 minutes every night and in a public session did what we're doing tonight, twice on Saturday, twice on Sunday, afternoon and evening. So, from his point of view, this was important. It's important to answer the question, what did the Buddha say? So, as I say, welcome. Let's find out. What did the Buddha say, after all? When he talked, can I understand it? If I understand it, why would I bother? What's the point of that? Well, find out. Find out. There are, there are answers to those questions. Let's find out. Do it. Can I understand it? Is it relevant? Does it help? Does it help me get through my day or my night to know what the Buddha said? Is there value to my life right this minute in figuring out what the Buddha said? My answer to that question is yes. Yes, indeed. There is value there. Because, here's why, the Buddha was a person who saw deeply into his mind same mind that I'm walking around inside of or with every single day that I breathe. You too. Same mind. And the Buddha saw it deeply, clearly, and described it. So, if you've ever had a, a day when you couldn't figure north, south, east, west, couldn't see through your troubles, couldn't make a decision because both choices looked equally bad, and you didn't know who to ask. If you ever had a day like that, you ever have a day that was just so high and deliriously joyful and sweet and pleasurable and then something happened to it? It just kind of leaked away? If so, welcome to the mind. That's where we're looking. That's this, this thing that's in charge of the day that I walk through every day and the night that I go to sleep in and wake up in the next day. It's the mind. The Buddha saw it clearly and described it. And, this is where it gets really interesting, much of the things that he described, much of the states of mind, are echoed in the teachings of other religions. 
it's not Buddha circle R. A lot of what the Buddha described is completely accessible through the Hebrew scriptures, through the Holy Quran, through the teachings of Patanjali, through the insights of Catholic mystics and independent seekers who've gone out and described uh, what they saw when their minds were still in quiet. So, that's why. Okay, a lot of it, and we're just barely getting it into English, bit by bit by bit. So, this is one of those texts that has uh, um, teachings that are very accessible. And that's what we do every week, is uh, spend the Saturday night uh, opening the text and saying, number one, do I understand it? Number two, how does it apply? Does it apply? So, tonight, we're here with the kings. And last week, we ended with the top two verses on page 99 and 98 and 99. And we started with the third stanza, but I think to get the whole flow, let's go back to the top, where it says, while he dwells on this, the first ground, he serves as king of merit and virtue. He uses dharma to transform all beings, compassionately without the slightest harm. Ruling and directing Jambudvipa, he enables transformation without fail. He inspires all to great renunciation and to accomplish the wisdom of a Buddha. So we talked about that last week, um, about a king of merit and virtue who used the Dharma to transform others, to teach others, and he did so compassionately without hurting. And I talked, uh, as an illustration of that, I talked about my failures as um, an advocate of vegetarian dharma, eating a harmless diet, and how uh, I spent years putting my finger in people's faces and preaching and getting very mixed results. Some people were just like offended and said, what, who, why do you have any right to tell me what to eat? You know, didn't you, aren't you a meditator? Why, why are you in my kitchen? Why are you at my breakfast table? Get out of my soup bowl. You know, mind your own business, busybody. I got a lot of responses like that, rightly so. And uh, so I had to learn, because um, <clears throat> I'll confess up. This, I'll confess, I'll fess up. Uh, full disclosure, I think eating a plant-based diet is good for people. That's my brutal truth, right? I'm actually biased. I do have an, a press preference. I'm right out there telling you with flags flying, I think eating harmlessly is better. It's way better for people and it's way better for the animals that you don't eat as well. But I won't put my finger in your face tonight, so fear not. Uh, that was my counterexample last week, was to say, boy, that's not the approach to take if you really want people to stick around or tr consider you know, some alternatives to eating. What works is giving people something that tastes delicious as good as what they will be renouncing and letting go of if they decide to experiment with different ways of nutrition. It's got to taste as good as what they're letting go of or forgetting. Because food that we eat growing up comes from mom and mom loves me and food is mom's love. Don't tell me different. Fair enough, right? How could mom not give you love through food? So for me, some external party to say, hey, wrong. You're trying to teach me that mom didn't love me? I'm sorry, no comprende. That does not compute. Get out of my face. You know, go back to meditate. So 
I had to learn other methods. Teaching compassionately without the slightest harm, the most effective way is to say, hey, try this. And they go, hmm, like my stepfather, Ted, the meat eater, who would come to the Berkeley Monastery on days that he couldn't avoid it. My stepfather, bless his heart, loves steak. Ted loved steak. And he traveled the whole world. He ate in Paris. He ate in Rio. He ate in Sydney. And everywhere he went, he would say, ah, steak, rare. Mm, I like it a lot. You know, they would go, these Americans. Yeah, yeah, that's what I am. I like steak. You know, he wasn't shy. He liked steak. So he comes to the Berkeley Monastery. I went the 2003 celebrating my doctorate. And uh, of course, he's got to be there when his, his stepson is getting his PhD. So he shows up and uh, the incredible cooks at the Berkeley Monastery, you know, serve my mom and my stepfather the, the finest vegetarian food. And Ted goes, mm. he, he didn't hold his hose. He did everything but, you know, like that. He got, well, he goes, hey, you know, that's pretty good, he said. And then he would say, well, I could eat that every day. I wouldn't miss meat. My mother rolls her eyes knowing that that's a polite thing for Ted to say. You know, that's as diplomatic as he got. Now, whether he got steak as soon as he got back to his hotel, I don't know. I didn't ask. But while he was here, he did say, that's pretty good, he said. I could eat that every day. I wouldn't miss meat, is his famous last words. So... Um, I learned from that that it's true. If you give people something to eat that's delicious and didn't die in order to make it to your plate, then you're doing better. You're, you gotta, you're, you're much better than putting your finger in the face for the, even the best reasons and criticizing somebody's cuisine. What is, you know, how do I have the right to do that? So teaching compassionately without the slightest harm is a skill. It's not something you learn immediately. You have to try, you have to, unless you have great wisdom. If you have wisdom, you know exactly what to say. If you lack that wisdom, you do it by trial and error. So, ruling and directing Jambudvipa, the bodhisattva on the first ground, is king-like. He's like a ruler among people. Because why? He's got that quality to inspire people to follow him. What's the point of a ruler if nobody follows? Of a leader if they lead alone? Come on, let's go. Uh, anybody? Right? You step right out boldly and there's nobody behind you. Because they're all following you. You're blind. You're going and you don't know where you're going. This is someone who's got that quality of stepping forward and everybody is right behind them. Because there's something in the heart that response. <coughs> My word for that would be Taoda um, in Chinese, which translates as virtue in the Tao, virtue from the Tao. What does that mean? What is virtue from the Tao? It's hard to describe. Um, if you've ever read Lao Tzu's Tao De Jing, the classic of the virtue of the Tao and its virtue, Tao De, the Tao, its virtue, classic. He spends the entire book describing the function of that quality of we feel as leadership that I went, we want to follow. And what is he reduced to? He's reduced to almost uh, syllogisms. He's reduced to 
analogy, uh, he says you can't name it. You can't find it. But there's nowhere that it's not. You can't leave it for even an instant. You never get away from the Tao. It's instantly there. And yet, no weight, no color, no form, no sound, no mass, no, no velocity. Can't measure it with the things that we measure with. But when it functions, it is the most powerful. Here's, and he gives these beautiful analogies. For example, what's the Tao like? Um, what's the function of a window? The fact there's nothing there. Right? Oh, that's a window. What is it? It's a hole. That's the Tao. Right? The use of the Tao comes from what's not there. For example, a valley. If, you wanna, if you're going through the mountains and you've got to get from here to there and there's a mountain in the way... Do you go over the top or do you go where the mountain isn't? You go where the mountain isn't. That gap is the valley. That's where you go, the pass. That's the function of the Tao. How useful. right? To be able to see that at work in our lives, suddenly the half of life that is not presence comes alive. And you see this incredible quality. Tonight... Uh, on your way out. I don't know if it's overcast here, right here opposite the bay. It's kind of foggy mostly. But if you go to a place where the moon is visible, take a look. Stop, take a look at the moon and you'll see half of it's dark. And most of the time we only see the light half. We only look, oh, it's a crescent moon, right? No, it's not. Stop. Refocus. Take the time for your pupils to adjust to the dark and you'll see, hey, that dark half is right there. It never went anywhere. But we, our eyes go to the blossom, right? Notice the stem. Did you all see how beautiful this rose stem is? No. Who's looking at the stem? You ever get a rose without a stem? No. But the stem is not what our eye goes to, right? We don't look for the dark side of the moon, but it's never not there. We don't look for the emptiness function of the Tao, but it's never been anywhere else. That's what the, Lao, the Tao Te Ching is a lot about that. And he brings it to life and suddenly you see this half that has been hiding in plain sight all this time right in front of your eyes. So the, uh, the Bodhisattva is able to teach in this way to give people this flavor of mm, the... Uh, the way to teach through bringing us awake to what we haven't appreciated but has never been missing. Okay, now tonight we're on verse number three. It says, In his, her wish to seek the way supreme, she renounces her own royal throne. She can, within the Buddha's teaching, cultivate with courage and diligence. Okay, um, line one, yu qiu zui sheng dao, wanting to seek the highest dao. So there's our word. There's the dao. That's the word we we're just talking about. Dao. Uh, if you look at the Chinese character, you you might recognize that from covers of books you've seen. Uh, it's a very beautiful word all by itself. 
But in English, Tao can be path, like the path you take in an empty lot to get to the grocery store from one block, take the shortcut on a path. It can be just the road, meaning the thing that you travel on. It can be the way, abstractly. This is the way it should be done. Not that way, but this way, meaning method, technique, sequence, series. That can also be Tao, the, the way you travel. How did he go? Well, he went joyfully. That's a way. How did she go? She went regretfully, anxiously, right? Cautiously. That's all qualities that could be part of the Tao. The Bodhisattva here wants to seek Zui Sheng Dao, the finest, the highest, the most supreme. Sheng can also mean victorious, like Sheng Li, the Dao that wins, the one that succeeds. Wanting to seek the Zui Sheng Dao, the most sublime Dao, which would be what? Because this is a Buddha Sutra, it's for Tao, in this case. It's the path of the Buddha or the path of awakening because the Buddha is a title. It's not a person. When you wake up, you are the awakened one, the Buddha. If you want to know who, is it Shakyamuni Buddha? Is it Amitabha Buddha? Is it Vaisajirajguru Buddha, medicine Buddha? Is it Maitreya Buddha? Is it the Buddhas of the Ten Directions and the Three Periods of Time? Those are, that's the next question you ask after you, you get the title. So the question is, um, we have a, a title and it's the awakened way. It's the path, the most sublime path of awakening. Um, are there less, are there mm, not sublime, less sublime paths. Absolutely. And this is, this is interesting. Um, the Buddha Dharma is one of those, the Buddha's teaching is one of those teachings that talks about reincarnation. Okay? Reincarnation is one of those words that we uh, have all run into uh, in our reading and maybe in church on Sunday or on Saturday or Friday, whenever you go. Um, reincarnation is, is familiar and unfamiliar both. We hear about it. They talk about transmigration, rebirth, things like this. That whole notion was very much a part of the religious world the Buddha grew up in. That is to say, India of the... Uh, sixth century before the, Christ, before the common era. Uh, Hinduism shared it, right? What, what we call Brahmanism, Hinduism. Were you all aware that Hinduism is, is inaccurate? That's just a footnote. You might check that out later. Hin there is no specific Hinduism. There are the religions of India that base themselves largely on ancient text the Vedas, the Puranas, the Upanishads, 
around them, there are as many ways of being, quote, Hindu or religiously Indian as there is to be Protestant Christian. I teach up at the Graduate Theological Union, uh, UC Berkeley Seminary, and we did, our community did a survey of how many, how many groups in the sphere of influence of GTU, as I say it that way because that means East Bay, North Bay, South Bay, Contra Costa, and of course San Francisco and the Peninsula, how many Christian, self-identified, Protestant Christian groups are there that would want to or would consider joining what was called the Evangelical Pentecostal Fundamentalist Roundtable. Okay? Not mainstream. How many groups would consider themselves Evangelical Fundamental Pentecostal in the GTU sphere? Any guesses? How many self-identified say, yeah, we would consider joining that. Or we don't like them, but that's pretty much who we are. Or, yeah, yeah, we, we want to join. How many would you guess? 50? Is that a lot? 50 groups that would consider themselves evangelical in the Bay Area? 100? You'd be wrong by half. 200 groups that are in this group self-identified as evangelical, fundamental, Pentecostal. How about that? Then you start on the mainstream. The, Cat, the Methodists, the UCC, the Lutherans that are considered... Okay, lots, lots of folks. There are more Hindu groups than that that would consider themselves part of this bigger umbrella called Hindu. Okay, that larger umbrella, pretty much everybody would say reincarnation is a fact. Okay, reincarnation is a fact. In order to seek the way supreme, in order to seek the Tao supreme, he renounces his royal throne. This is an idea that was very much part of the religious landscape that we come back. We come back. And the Buddha, in so many ways, was a radical, a reformer, somebody who took the standard view and changed it deepened it, changed it, and modified it so that it became human again. If you had to say what are the qualities of the Buddha's reforms in the Hindu, quote, Hindu religious landscape, he humanized it. For example, he ordained women. It's not possible for many of the the religious groups. Men were the only ones who had the status to ascend into the teachings. The Buddha said, nope, he ordained women. The Buddha ordained untouchables. Absolutely impossible given the context. He said, your social caste by birth does not limit your wisdom. Cultivation limits your wisdom. Whether or not you apply the teachings. That's the issue. Not who your parents were. So he 
turn that on its ear. Right? The Buddha's innovation in the notion of reincarnation was to say that it's not fixed. He said, this is neat. I started out by saying 10 minutes ago, this is interesting. Here's what I meant when I said this is interesting. The Buddha said, having a human body is a lot like standing in an airport terminal. Standing in an airport. Okay, we get out of the van, pull up the handle on our rollerboard, and go into the terminal. What do we have? We've got a choice of nine airlines going everywhere. If it's an international airport, really everywhere. I really like Hong Kong. The, Hong, the new Hong Kong airport is a nice place. Big windows, big glass. It's there on Lantau, on Blue Island, on Daishan. And there are mountains. It's a very beautiful place. And as you walk down one of the concourses, you see these big signboards. You know, they're big. And in their Chinese and English, telling you where the planes are going. The planes are going places you've never been. <laughs> I guarantee. It's so neat to walk down. And you, you're, this plane is going off to Vanuatu. Okay, well, this plane is going off to Dubai. And this plane is going off to Kashgar. And this plane is going off to Beijing. And this plane is going off to Shenzhen. And you go, wow, this, this is, it's a, suddenly I'm in touch with the big world. You're going to Taipei, you know, where you, Taipei, you know, Taipei. You grew up there in L.A. You're going to L.A. to Taipei, San Francisco, Taipei. These planes are going to Mongolia. These planes are going to London, you know. Very wonderful. So, the Buddha said, having a human body is just like that. You can go anywhere. Not true if you have the body of a deva. Not true if you have the body of a Springer Spaniel. A ghost. A being in the hells, even less. Right? An asura. Having a human body is not a bad thing. And it's not the best thing either. But if you want to move forward to the... If you want to seek the most supreme Tao, having a human body is where you want to be. And he would say, congratulations. Now, do something with it. Make sure that you don't lose this opportunity. The analogy to an airport uh, lobby, an airport terminal, is really a good one because you can go anywhere from, the, from, the human, from a human body. So, suppose the Buddha reformed that by saying anywhere. It's not determined by who you were born from. Who's your, who your parents were, their caste. Suppose you were born as a king and said, I don't want to be king. I want to cultivate instead. Being a king is no freedom. Being a king is like being in jail. Suppose you said that and you renounced your royal throne. Could you, within the Buddha's teaching, then cultivate with courage and diligence. Mm, tough. What a story is being told in this stanza, right? Um, I was in Orlando 
two Mondays ago, knowing I had a long day of flying back to Oakland. And I stopped in at the bookstore and wanted to get something to read. I found a historical novel by uh, a Chinese writer named An Qi Min, Min Anzhu. She wrote uh, Red Azaleas and her experience as a, during the Cultural Revolution. Her new book is called um, Empress Orchid. And it's about Cixi Taihou. It's about the last empress of China during the Qing dynasty, a Manchu woman who uh, rose to be the ruler of China. Amazing story. It's um, probably the most um, thorough research that anybody has done about this woman's life. There are other historical records about She's called the Empress Dowager, right? Cixi Taihou in Chinese. And there are scholars who've written about her. Some of their findings have been recently discredited as being completely fictional. She talked to a British man named Hart, I believe. Um, and he, she wrote letters to him. And he preserved uh, the correspondence and Turns out, recently, they think he, he made a lot of it up. Big disappointment. Uh, controversial. So this writer, An Chi Min, um, did some really thorough research and then wrote historical fiction, you know, put words in her mouth, put thoughts in her head. Of course, we don't know what she thought precisely, but based on the research, she did a pretty thorough job. And I must say, having read that book, uh, I too would want to... Uh, renounce my royal throne <laughs> today. It's like, oh man, you don't want to be Empress of China. Let me tell you, uh, first of all, your chances of having your head chopped off are real good. Just the, what a brutal, gruesome place was the Forbidden City. Um, if you violated rules, and rules were often changed, changing because of power seekers who could get very high up and be very evil. The, uh, the, the stereotype of the evil advisor who has the ear of the king, totally real. Like Rasputin in the Russian royal family and uh, you think about uh, various prime ministers and people who, various vice presidents, not to be named, right, who... Uh, seemed to run with an iron fist right over the poor hapless person in the Oval Office, never mind. Um, so that stereotype was really true in the Royal Palace and often the person who was in charge was a eunuch. And in this book about uh, the Empress Orchid, because her name was Orchid, uh, Lan, the, um, the, the, this, the whole thing about eunuchs comes into focus, which is just bizarre on the face of it. Um, her story, I'll just give you a, a taste of it and then we'll move on because this personalizes the, the story in, te, in our, the image in our sutra. Um, the young 16-year-old emperor, uh, uh, Shenfeng, who was apparently very sensitive guy, not tough and mean, 
um, the, the only son of the prior emperor. And he didn't want to be an emperor. He wanted to play, he wanted to write, he wanted to sing, he wanted to do opera, he wanted to, to ride and walk and experience the world. He couldn't. He had to govern. He did not want to govern. He needed an heir. He needed sons because he was too young. He was a teenager. He was the emperor of China. And he was in the grips of very uh, power-mad, unscrupulous prime minister. So, in order to produce a son, he had to find a wife. So, what if you're the emperor of China, how do you find a wife? Well, you send out an official proclamation. Hear ye, hear ye. You want your daughter to be my wife. Send her to the palace and she can audition. <laughs> so 3,000 girls did. 3,000 young women showed up uh, for, the, for the cut. you know. And, of course, they have to bribe their way to get even to be considered. And they're just... If you were off by the slightest bit, you were sent home in tears and... And all that money spent on your gown is wasted and blah, 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 blah. So, okay, 3,000, what's, what's he going to do? How does it shake down? Well, he winds up with seven primary concubines and 1,000 secondary concubines. So, the, the emperor of China had 1,007 wives. Okay, of the seven he had to pick one primary wife. And this emperor, Xianfeng, was really not interested. He just, he saw this a waste of time. He'd never met a woman who he thought was telling him the truth. They would all just say, <laughs> you know, 10,000 years to the royal emperor. And he would go, <laughs> parrots, send her away. You know, Once he sent you away, and you were already in this select group of a thousand, chances are that was the last time you saw your husband. For the rest of your natural life, and you came there 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, for the rest of your life, you would be behind the wall, talking only to eunuchs, never to see your husband, getting ready for him every single day with rouge and powder and makeup and dresses. You never saw him, and you died behind that wall. Lonely, frightened, missing your mom, having nothing to do. Many of them became devout Buddhists, reciting all day long, just saying, pure land, pure land, pure land. <laughs> Take me out of here. Right? Now, that's because this emperor was just not interested in women. He was interested in poetry and opera. He, you know, he's a kid, basically, a teenager. And the women, the women he met, he saw them as superficial and just coarse and rude. So, of the seven, one of them, through sheer luck, was our heroine, Orchid, who became Sushi Taiho. She was really talkative and fearless. And when she finally had her chance to meet him one night, she was put in his bedroom... And he came in and he just nearly spat on her. He said, you're just, just totally a waste of time, you know. And she started to cry and she said, you're just too rude. You didn't even ask me who I was and you already rejected me. He goes, you have a brain? 
you know, you talk? You know? So she came to his attention because she dared speak up and actually show her humanity. And it turns out that they had an intellectual affinity and he could talk to her and she would talk back to him. She wasn't so scared, you know, that she uh, got petrified. So that's how she came to his attention. But of the seven who were the primary wives, he only paid attention to two. One tried to poison the child that came from Sushi. She got she was allowed to hang herself, right? Permitted to hang herself on a silken noose because she had tried to poison out of jealousy. And on and on. And Sushi writes, you get the impression that being in the Forbidden Palace was no fun, to say the least. It, you'd maybe be better off behind a plow, starving and being flooded out when the Yellow River rises, because at least there you had people in your life. You still had your family. But these poor girls were ripped from their families, stuck in the palace to die and wilt, and that's the story. So, not pleasant. And the intrigues and the corruption and the nastiness of that life, the artificiality of it, was just beyond imagination. So I, I really, that, that historical novel really opened my eyes to what it means to want to renounce royal throne for what? For a chance to wake up. For a chance to follow the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas into wisdom and compassion. He can, within the Buddha's teaching, cultivate with courage and diligence. Yeah. So that's going to sound better than what these sad women. And the eunuchs. Ah, I need to say a word about that. The eunuchs. Why were there eunuchs? What is a eunuch? It's called a taijian in Chinese. A eunuch was someone who, as a boy, had been castrated, had been rendered impotent because he could be in the throne with the concubines who needed organizing and there was no fear that he might produce the child. Right? Because having the real heir to the throne was the big deal. To be able to produce a son was the big deal. If a eunuch who's been, he's kasfati, right? He's got no ability to raise, to father children. The emperor didn't have to worry that maybe if the empress gets pregnant, it was one of the guards or one of the watchmen or one of the generals or one of the courtiers or the prime minister himself. It was probably his kid. So, um, so the life of a eunuch was just unbelievably strange beyond belief. There, sometimes their voices didn't, their voices would stay soprano. So he'd look like a man, but he talk like this. He had a woman, you know, high soprano voice. Um, because these were men, except couldn't have any children, so they would get greedy for power. And they would fight with each other for their slice of the royal pie, since they didn't have any sons to carry on their name. And usually, according to this book, the kids would have to want to 
They, it wasn't the case that they were forced to this life unless their parents needed the money or had too many kids or something and they would just send the boy. But usually, you know, it's not that they, against their will, usually. So what an institution this was. Eunuchs exist because harems exist. Harem is all of the wives of the emperor, right? If you have a thousand and seven wives, you better have somebody in there you can trust to keep it in order, right? What an amazing institution. So, this is one way that royalty and nobility has manifested in history. So, can you blame the emperor for wanting to renounce the royal throne to seek the Tao? So, he can, she can, within the Buddha's teachings, cultivate with courage and diligence, wanting to go feel the wind on your face, wanting to go cook some food for yourself, to make a cup of tea, wanting to go uh, see what's going on in the city with the scholars, with the, the, the real life that's happening outside the palace walls. So, when this person does it, 子德白三昧, 起见白诸佛, 震动白世界, 光照恨一儿, 光照恨一儿, he then realizes a hundred samadhis and he sees one hundred Buddhas. He makes one hundred worlds tremble and quake. His light shines this far as well. Now we get a series of hundreds. These hundreds come up now, um, all the way through to the end of the chapter. And this has to do with um, the a lot of excitement next door. This has to do with uh, um, the first ground. The second ground goes further, more than a hundred. The third ground goes further than that, more than the second ground, etc. This is one of those places where we get a refrain. And it's because um, as the Bodhisattva is cultivating along, his or her samadhi, their state of concentration deepens and their mind is purified and expands as it goes. And the same qualities are here. Samadhis, Buddhas, that she's realizing samadhis, seeing Buddhas and quaking worlds. Interesting idea. The, the notion that um, to make a hundred worlds tremble and quake. This is uh, a quality that is repeated throughout many of the Buddha's, uh, many, much of the Buddhist literature. The idea that what? The mind and nature are intimately connected. When somebody accomplishes success in their practice, nature celebrates. Imagine? That, that notion is fascinating. And all the sutras say that. Um, there's a, a saying in the Chan school that... Uh, when one child accomplishes the way, the Tao, 
nine generations of ancestors are reborn in the heavens. You go, nine, not ten, not eight? How do you know? Says who? Really? Interesting. The idea that there is such profound goodness in the Tao. When a child accomplishes the Tao. When your nature and this thing called the Tao that we talked about, the absence of the the wall where the window space is. When your nature and the Tao become one, it has an impact on your relatives. Hmm. Interesting. That would seem to echo some of the teachings in the Hebrew Scriptures about sins of the Father. What about virtues of the Father? Does the good filter back or out? Hmm. Interesting. Suppose you are a Mensch, suppose you are a righteous person who fulfills all of the teachings, do all the mitzvot, all the good that you can do. Does anybody else get the benefit? Well, the teachings in the Hebrew Scriptures say that evil filters down. So what about good? Now, if we accept that model, what does that do to the idea that you receive the karmic rewards and offenses, the retribution of your own deeds and not anybody else. Mm. Interesting idea. So, if I do evil, can somebody else be punished? Mm. If I do good, can somebody else get the rewards? Mm. What about that? Let's murk it up a little more. What about transference of merit? What about sharing goodness? Giving goodness away. Is it limited to my family line? Is it limited to my male line? Can my mom be punished if I do wrong? Whoa. Who's keeping score? Right? Who's the lawyer who's going to come and take my, plead my case? Uh, and say, ah, 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 no, 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 no. She only got, she only deserves 50% of what that punishment. The other 50% goes to your uncle. You never liked them anyway. So, complicated issues, right? Where's the karmic lawyer who's in there sorting this all out? Where's the uh, statutes that indicate, oh, 40% here, 50%. I'm only being partially facetious. I mean, this is real stuff. This is real questions. So, here we have somebody accomplishing the way. He makes a hundred worlds tremble and quake. When this person this first stage, first ground bodhisattva, finishes the first ground, does all these practices, things happen. There are results of that. He, she realizes a hundred samadhis. That means these states of meditation, these meditative trances that change, that make the mind settle and become still and pure. Furthermore, Buddhas appear. You can see Buddhas, not just like there's a Buddha, there's a Buddha. It's like you actually are in the presence of these other awakened beings. Third, nature responds. The earth quakes in a wholesome way, harmlessly. And your light shines. 
光照恒一耳。Your illuminating practices are the same. That is to say, a hundred realms. So, what is this? How does this work?、Um, my short answer is I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a karmic lawyer. I don't see any further than than anybody else does, and that's that's true. But for things like karma, which is invisible, where's the engine that drives karma?、Mm, hard to find, right? But although I don't see. The gears, the levers, the pulleys that make this action result in that result. This action produces that result. I don't see it. However, I do see some things that allows me to infer that more is happening. For example,、uh, let's let's just pick something close at hand. Um, I recall when our distinguished president, currently sitting, President Barack Obama, when he、um, accepted the nomination to be president, the joy—let's just say when he was inaugurated that day、uh, on the Capitol steps in Washington D.C.—that cold day. Remember Yo-Yo Ma? Play, trying to play the cello with frozen fingers, and that was, by the way, lip synced. That was taped. And、uh, well, who was、uh, Isaac Stern? Was was at the cello, and who was at the piano?、Um, on that day, and the helicopter flew away back to Texas. There was a sense of hope. There was a sense of common purpose and unity, which I think is very much still alive.、Um, that was a sense of joy. That our country hadn't experienced. Example two, the transformation in New York City after 9/11. That incredible commonality that people felt. The walls between people that we ordinarily keep when you're on the streets of Manhattan were gone. There was just everybody talked about this this complete、uh, solidarity that everyone felt. With the horror of those towers falling. Okay, events and individuals can make transformations.、Um, you can be in BART, and somebody gets on the train who's seriously off, and everybody feels it. You just see everybody kind of their shoulders go up. They go into their iPods. They push their Earphones in a little tighter, and they just wait and hope the guy doesn't sit beside you. You know, when they walk by, there's that feeling of you just feel it. You just, the whole car just tenses when somebody gets on who's radiating imbalance, right? And if somebody befriends that person or is kind to them, invites them to sit, you just feel the collective sigh, right? So people's states of mind. Produce results on the environment. We impact our surroundings. That's my point. That's visible. You can see that. What about when somebody is sublimely good?
What about when someone is completely free of self? What has happened to a bodhisattva that changes that person from ordinary is the self is gone. There's no me and mine left. It's only us and ours. You feel no harm from a bodhisattva, from somebody who is awake to this point. What is the impact of that person when the last layers of confusion that make me think I'm special and different and unique are gone and the nature and the environment are one? What is the power of that? That's what I'm suggesting. When somebody accomplishes the Tao, that's what's different. When a person like that appears, things change. Master Shenhua, our founder, had a way of teaching that uh, I always felt it as primary colors. Red was red. Green was green. Yellow, blue, they were not pastels. When it came to questions of right and wrong, you were always clear where he stood. And often you'd feel like he was shaping you or directing you, steering you just by the intensity of his virtue of being right and wrong. And it was so clear when you saw this person embody goodness that this is the way it's done. And when it was, so it wasn't murky, it wasn't confused, it was really, really clear uh, how, how he would teach. And yet it wasn't fixed either. He could, he could uh, adapt it, but it was not murky. And being around someone like that was such a relief to have somebody stand for fundamental goodness and to be able to see it. I think the Bodhisattva is that way. When they accomplish the Tao, things shake up. It's just so nice to have someone who is radiating goodness at that level. So, um, that's my guess at what's going on. You can't see the engines driving it. You don't see why the world shakes. Um, that's exactly what happens. Okay. Want, want one of those believe it or nots? I got a believe it or not for you. Do with it what you will. Um, City of 10,000 Buddhas. 1970, 1978, 1978, um, a woman named Dolores Krieger, who was an RN, a nurse, had the specialty of healing touch. She was a, a massage therapist who I don't think she ever touched. She was using her cheek. And this was at a time before any kind of discipline like this was seen. And she's, you know, Dolores Krieger. She's a German-American. And she had a bunch of nurses in Northern California who she was teaching how to do this. And they, this was, these are healing professionals, fully scientifically qualified, uh, capable, mm, not flaky, 
nurses who were looking for uh, massage skills and found this level of sublime massage. Okay, here they are, city of 10,000 Buddhas. And uh, one of our nuns, the former Bhikshuni Hungin, Hungin this is Lani, not the current uh, Hungin, um, she had arranged for this gathering. They'd come to our brand new monastery, Northern California, city of 10,000 Buddhas. This is just two years after it began. And they uh, had invited Master Shrenhua to come out to speak. So the, um, the place where the meeting was going to happen was what we called the back, the back property. You have to go down, um, you enter the gate and go all the way to the end. The gate wasn't there at the time. And then you cross over the creek and walk. And the, uh, that's where the, the uh, Ho Shan, the back property, was. So there are photographs. You can see the photographs in uh, Master Hua's memorial book. These uh, must have been a dozen RNs and LPNs and healing professionals. They're sitting in a circle under um, a eucalyptus tree. And Master Hua comes out and he... Uh, is about to speak and the earth quakes. It's starting to quake. It's going shake, 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 shake. And you think, well, Mendocino County occasionally gets, you know, the Russian River, the San Andreas Fault is right there. And so Master Hua goes, stop it. Takes his cane. He has a patriarch staff. He says, stop it. Instantly the earthquake stops. And everybody's going, did you feel that? Well, what was that? Everyone's going, I, I felt something. What was that? And Master Hua said, the dragons are welcoming you and they want us to build on this spot. And so Master Hua gives his talk to them. How are you? He describes uh, part of the Bodhisattva path, probably right from the sutra. And when he's done... He stands up and the earth quakes again. And they're all sitting there going, this is really weird. And instead of being scared, everybody was delighted. And he says, stop it. He says, too soon, he said. Hits the stage, stops like that. And he says, they're, they're really playful. He says, they're really happy today. And everyone's going, wait a minute. What's the connection between you? Did you just stop that? We were shaking. You know, what's going on? And he says, you've heard of the earth quaking in six ways. He says, this is a sign that uh, the environment is pleased with humanity. So rarely is that true that we don't see these, these manifestations of virtue very often. But he says, Master Hua explained to the women, he wasn't trying to be you know, coy or mysterious. He didn't own it. He said, this is just a case of a response inter interacting with the Tao, with the way. He said, the fact that you all are here asking about the Dharma is a wholesome thing. This is a sacred ground and the dragons are delighted because they've been waiting for us, he said. So 
the teaching says that when somebody accomplishes the Tao or there is supreme virtue happening, the earth can quake in six ways. Da di, the earth, liu zhong, six kinds of quaking. And it describes them. There's roaring, shaking, uh, buckling, quaking, six kinds. And three of them have to do with sound. And uh, Shriva said this is just because these dragons have been hoping that we would come out to, to bring this goodness here. So he said that's what's going on. And the nurses are saying, blink, blink, blink. I've never heard of such a thing, you know, but that's what I felt. How can you explain that? So if you go back and look at Vajrabodhisi in those years, you'll find the story and the pictures of uh, Master Hua sitting there surrounded by nuns. And to this day, they'll all say, absolutely, that's what we experienced. It shook for minutes until he went, stop, stop doing that. You know, don't, don't confuse people. You can be happy, don't confuse people. So that's uh, something that uh, I, we were still in our pilgrimage at the time. We heard about it when the next group of people came out. But uh, gadzooks, you know, it's like, huh, science has a hard time coming up with um, explanations for people's virtue interacting with the natural environment. Um, certainly it is the case, traditionally, that the opposite is also true. If people are sufficiently bad, there can be response in nature. There is a teaching, traditional teaching, that says after a war, where there has been a war, nothing wholesome grows for seven years. So on battlefields, often battlefields are fallow for the next generation. So great evil can also influence an environment. The uh, teaching in Chinese traditional thought is Tian Di Ren, heaven, earth, and humanity form a triune, a, a tripart uh, whole, a unit that all sides have to live up to their bargain. If humanity does its share, heaven and earth are in balance. The opposite is also true. If we don't, then heaven and earth will manifest imbalance. And global warming, climate change, is an example of humanity not doing its part. So the real change that could happen has to begin in human behavior. Fundamentally, letting go of greed. Asking ourselves the question, how much is enough? How much is need? How much is greed? If we bleed the earth from the bottom of the ocean, very little good will come of that. And uh, it's, only, it's a last-ditch, pathetic effort to keep our vehicles moving um, that will produce disastrous results in, our, in the rest of the, 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 the balance that could be. Not to preach, this is stuff you've heard, but the template for this, the, the formula for this has been part of our heritage wisdom forever. We just run right by it. Okay, we will finish our chapter next week um, with the last five stanzas because they go on to describe more things that happen when the Bodhisattva accomplishes the Tao as the king. Next week, um, I'm going to read to you um, the most poignant letter that you've heard in a long time 
from the emperor who gave up the throne of China to become a Buddhist monk. The emperor that abdicated his throne. He left this incredibly compelling verse that talks about <coughs> his thought processes, what went on in his mind when he said, not interested in being emperor, I'm gone. So that was a, a Ming, Ming dynasty emperor who renounced the throne and left this incredible verse. I'll present that to you next week. So make sure that you're here and we'll try to get our technology online uh, earlier so we don't waste time getting set up. Now, um, I would like to invite you to share. Here is a way that we can use our minds to interact with the environment. In the Jewish tradition, it's called tikkun olam, which is repairing the world, healing things. And we do it uh, one thought at a time. But the idea, this whole notion of transference of merit, is very nature interactive. Here's an example of um, heaven, earth, and humanity doing their part. Each doing their part to make things, to balance things that are out of balance. Our part is to make a wholesome wish. Send out the goodness that comes from spending your Saturday night looking into these wisdom texts, um, stretching, challenging the boundaries of what's possible, credible, just um, suspending our belief and increasing our knowledge, then deciding later whether it's true or, or not. That's not a question we have to ask immediately. Buddha certainly didn't tell us to believe just to believe. He said, see if it works for you. If it's wholesome, if it's beneficial, then you can use it. You need not say, this is true, this is false. I believe, I disbelieve. So I really, that appeals to my scientifically minded approach to spiritual practice. Meanwhile, in the midst of that suspended belief, Put your heart into a wish for goodness. Let's dedicate the merit. Hey, 
Thank you. 